Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English and Gordon Ritchie bringing you an end of season World SBK review. It's a little bit of a break in the normal programming we've got on the Paddock Pass podcast at the moment, just because we've had Neil and Adam talking about MotoGP for the last couple of weeks. But we're going to jump in with a bit of superbikes before getting back to the end of season MotoGP reviews. And Gordo, it's been a hell of a year for World SBK. Ah, it's been bizarre in every possible way. Um, we've never quite had a season like this. So condensed and in so few geographical areas. Uh, but we feel very lucky that we actually got a big flyaway in at the beginning, which kicked things off fantastically. But it's just been such a strange year. Um, although the outcome was the same and Jonathan won his sixth championship, but even that in itself is quite amazing. Um, unprecedented has been an overused word this year, but the success of Jonathan is totally unprecedented. Continued, but he did have a serious threat this year. Um, and there was a multiple, multiple group of bikes and riders that were actually fully to the fore, winning races, getting podiums. Um, it was largely very unpredictable. And that's what everybody wants out of racing, I think. And Gordo, right, we're going to start off straight away. Phillip Island is always a round of itself. But this year, it really was. We had a massive gap from... The 1st of March, when we finished up in Phillip Island, all the way through to the 1st of August. So we really did have World SBK Round Zero in Phillip Island. It was totally disjointed from the rest of the season, but it was probably the best race weekend I can remember since I came into the paddock. Oh, it was glorious in every aspect. It was glorious. Um, not for Jonathan. He didn't have a great start, but I think that also left a big question mark of, oh, maybe the rest of the season is going to be a little bit different. Uh, we always knew that that guy and that team were going to come back strong, but you look at the 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 all the saddle swapping in the winter time came to an immediate fruition there when we had Toprak winning a race and Alex winning a race and Jonathan coming back from a, a, a anger or temper or, or or just lack of patience crash in the opener to to go ahead and win the short race. Um, it, it was you didn't know where to look, and the action. I mean, the action is always good at Phillip Island, but it really was not a certainty. Okay, this at the end, it's going to be this guy, and then it's going to be that guy. We had four guys, five guys, two guys. All every time you looked round, there was something happening. It's just a glorious place to go racing Phillip Island, and even the fact that it's so hard on tyres on one side makes it that way. But it was also just a complete as a starting gun. That was a cannon. It was brilliant. And the whole world was watching. And for a while, it was almost the only thing that the whole world had to see and remember was that first round of Superbike. So it was the feel-good factor was off a of scale in Australia. Absolutely off a of scale. Yeah, I remember turning up into Qatar for round one of MotoGP. Obviously, the GP Premier Class race got cancelled, but everyone in the paddock wanted to talk about Phillip Island because... They saw just three great races. I think there was a tenth of a second was the total combined winning margins. And you really couldn't say at that moment in time who was going to be the man to beat through the course of the season. But what we did all say at the end of it was Scott Redding came in and did a really good job in his first weekend. He had three podiums. And then when racing did finally get resumed, he had three great races in Hareth as well. He started the season with two almost perfect rounds for him, really consistent in Phillip Island, three podiums, two wins in Hareth, and he left Hareth leading the World Championship, and it looked like we had a real chance that Reading was going to be able to carry that forward all the way through the season, 
but Hareth really was the high point for him, wasn't it? It was. Um, and he got a pole there as well. It looked at that place, which is not a typical Ducati-dominant track, where you've got great big straights and uh, all the other aspects. It's got every kind of corner imaginable, but what it doesn't have at Hareth is a long straight. Um, and yet, he was the guy. Uh, okay, he didn't win every race, but he was he was there or thereabouts. And, and uh, it, it just looked good. And the, with all the tracks that were coming up, you thought, well, if he can be that good there, that was the big thing about Hareth, was not the fact that he was as good as he was. It was we were kind of expecting that from winter testing. We knew he was going to be there. But if he could be that good at Hareth, then it, it could carry on. There was no reason why it, 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 we, we looked at the rest of the races on the calendar and thought, OK, maybe Portimao. And, but almost all the other tracks, you thought, yeah, OK, we're here. And then the finale coming at our racetrack, none of us had been to, or not for a long time. Then it did look at, when you're looking through what's the season going to finish like, at that point, you just thought anything. And, and there might be Johnny chasing him rather than the other way around, which has been largely the way for most of the previous years except uh, 2019, which was just a season of two parts. Yeah, and Gordo, just to, before we go back to really talk about Johnny's season, we went to Port, uh, went to Portmao. Reading had a tough weekend in Portmao. Ducati struggled in general in Portmao, but Aragon we expected to be real red territory. It was red hot in Spain over the course of the summer, and we really expected that for those six races, two back to back rounds, that Ducati were going to be the bike to beat. And unfortunately for Reading, that's where we saw some mistakes creep in. And that's ultimately what really hampered him through the course of the season. Yes. Um, Ducati did have some good races there, but it wasn't necessarily him. This was the other interesting factor was, OK, uh, Ducati riders could be competitive there, but it, it, something went wrong with the Reading setup. Whether it was him, the bike, the team combination of all three, we were expecting, and how many times has he been there? We expected real domination from the Ducatis uh, after after that Portimao round and it just didn't it didn't happen not for one rider over everybody and not for uh, not for Reading and not consistently consistency is key and consistency is where it started going wrong um, and to, to challenge in this championship you have to be consistent um, and I don't mean consistent fourth or fifth I mean consistent first second first second first second third um, and it really started going wrong there. What that's been the issue for Ducati for a while has been consistency, um, and it carried on there when we weren't expecting it. I think that was what made it so compelling—not just the race action, but wow, there was another thing we didn't expect to happen. Yeah, because you mentioned consistency there, Gordo, and really from Portimao until the not so wet race in Magni Cor on Sunday. From for that period through Portimao, the two Aragon rounds, Catalonia, and then the opening half of the weekend in Magni Court, Jonathan Ray was superb. We saw again just regular grinding out race victories, podiums in Catalonia. He had one tough race in Catalonia as well, finished fourth, but it was all about his consistency. And you said consistency a couple of moments ago to win this championship. We saw Juan Mir was super consistent in MotoGP. That's what it takes to win a world championship now because the margins for all these riders, they're all so small. And for Ducati, we've seen two years in a row where they just haven't been consistent enough. And really this year, 
I think it's fair to say that we saw that the Kawasaki isn't the best bike on the grid. It's not the fastest package week in, week out. The team do a really good job of being able to make sure they can turn things out. But if you look at Catalonia, that Sunday in Magnicor and Estoril, we saw that Jonathan was struggling. We saw that he was a man under pressure. But Ducati just weren't consistent enough to take advantage of that. Yes, and that's the only thing that is missing from that uh, Ducati camp is consistency, rider, bike setup. The bike itself is good enough to win, uh, and it shows that by winning races, but they have to find that recipe to just say, okay, it's not going to perform at 100% this weekend, but we have to get it to perform at 99%, 99% of the weekends. And that is what the, the missing, uh, truly winning um, secret is. I don't know why. They used to be the winningest guys in the paddock um, for a couple of decades. Um, and they seem to have lost that ability to do it r- regularly. Um, I don't think the bike's too extreme. I think they know it well enough now. I think maybe they're just trying to push it too much. Um, maybe the bike's just got some inherent issues, but it has to be overcome good enough to let this, the same one or two riders take it onto the podium every single weekend without overriding. And mistakes come from riders when they have to override. Uh, and again, that's another thing that Jonathan doesn't usually do uh, and therefore his ability to slip up when he's on the edge seems much less than the other riders. Um, and look at what one or two mistakes for, for Reading uh, or the setup of his bike made to the overall championship. Um, it was it, It's the one thing they need to sort out and I don't know if they know what it is. They, they have had a tendency to blame the riders they have had a tendency to uh, maybe try too much in the engineering side, but that bike should, in theory, be the one to be on every single weekend. And when you look at how many different riders won on it this year and were competitive on it this year, there doesn't seem to be much wrong with the bike itself, but it's it's how that bike is taken to each weekend, how it's marshaled through the weekend, the rider's relationship with it, uh, different temperatures, different track surfaces, different grips. That is what has to. That's what Kawasaki seem to be doing better than anybody else for a number of years, and even this year when obviously the Kawasaki was pretty outgunned this year, you know it really was not the fastest bike, um, a very good rounded package, and when you've got somebody like Johnny on it, that's enough. But you notice the other Kawasaki riders this year had a, a bit of a struggle again. It's not the first year I see something, but I think it was even more stark this year. Yeah, and Gordo, just before we sort of move on to talk about those cowboy riders, I just want to ask you one last question about Ducati and one last question about Scott Redding. Did Scott Redding, even though he won five races, he had 14 podiums, he finished second in the World Championship, did Scott Redding disappoint this year or did it go as you expected it to go for him? Um, um, You know, he didn't disappoint. I think he he lit the place up. (laughs) It was great to have a rider that was that mouthy and and was then capable of, of putting in a performance to back it up. Um, it was it was hugely entertaining. Uh, I think it wasn't from my expectation from the from I think some people had overinflated expectations of what someone who had admittedly come from MotoGP and then won in, in year one in BSB, but I think that came with an over expectation for some people who maybe hadn't been paying enough attention into what what a superbike is and, and how it pans out 
Um, it wasn't a disappointment for me. I think there were a couple of disappointing outcomes, but no, I, I think it, it's been shown over the, the years that there's only one uh, one setup you have to beat. And for a guy in his first year to come here and try and beat that, it he came pretty close. So no, it wasn't disappointing for me. It might have been disappointing for Ducati and everybody else who really thought maybe he had to be able to do it. I think he does have all the tools required to do it, but they have to get them all in the right order and use them at the right time to compete for the championship. But I just... I, I would not have been surprised if he won, but they would have had to have had that consistency of performance to do it, and that was the only thing they was missing. And maybe that's not the rider. Maybe that was the bike. He certainly said, "Give me the bike, and I can win." And when he when he had the bike, he could win. So that to me is one of the compelling things about looking at next year is if they all learn that lesson, it's going to be much tougher for everybody, including Jonathan, next year if they learn those lessons and fix those problems. Well, let's go talk about Jonathan now, because obviously to see what he did, six world championships in a row, it's been just a continuation of that remarkable run that he's had, that Kawasaki's had. But like I said earlier, we've started to see that it's more of a struggle for Kawasaki. We've started to see that the Ducati, when it's working well, really is the bike to be on. But maybe for next year, the upgrades to the bike, they're only small upgrades. But for Kawasaki, do they need big upgrades or are smaller upgrades sufficient as long as they're able to keep that team together? Uh, I think they need more than they have now because the only thing that's been missing from the, the big main rival has been consistency of performance. Uh, if it hadn't gone wrong for Batista in 2019, they would have won out of the park. Um, and this year, again, a slightly less experienced rider, certainly in Superbike, uh, nearly really took it to them and took the championship right to the final round um, the Kawasaki needs upgrades and it's got them if they're enough we'll only really know in racing but what was Jonathan missing this year there was some places like uh, Aragon uh, for example when he, he, he was in amongst fighting with the Ducatis you could tell he just didn't have enough at the top end to let him you know he was having to push a bit and made a couple of mistakes Um Yes, I think the Kawasaki's probably going to have enough because they've got such good experience of the bike, they knew what they needed to fix. And I'm assuming that behind the scenes, they've fixed them. Uh, they've introduced a couple of new new technologies for them, uh, including a bit of aero. So it's, it, we'll, we'll see next year, and it'll be interesting to see next year, but I think they've not made huge wholesale changes to the bike. I think that's evident. But they maybe didn't have to. They just needed to be enough to stay with the faster bikes in the slipstream, to make a couple of chassis changes on a bike, which is quite old now, uh, the, the basic design. But it does work around a lap and over 22 laps, which is what you need. Um, enough is enough. This year it was just enough, hanging on a bit. Next year we'll see if it's raised itself enough to allow... In a full season, we should have a 13-round season next year. All those different tracks as well coming in. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to see if they've done enough. But they'll certainly have concentrated on the areas that the feedback from the riders has said to them, hey, we're struggling here, here, here and here. So you've got to assume that they've put that together and said, OK, we can't build a whole new model, but we'll fix the things that have been holding us back. And uh, Gordo, we saw on the other side of the Kawasaki pit box just how 
it doesn't all come together just because you're magically on a Kawasaki that it is a struggle that that bike does need work that you need to really be able to get it into the right operating window as well and I think uh, especially after Phillip Island it was probably a surprise for a lot of people to see how the season ended up transpiring for Alex Lowe's. Yes um, I think the Phillip Island obviously allows the riders to, to they have to look after tyres a little bit um, but this year they really did all kind of go for it a bit um, but you have to get every bike right and it's not Alex isn't the first Kawasaki rider that's not had the same kind of results as Jonathan on a regular basis um, so there's an element of setup. there's an element of the team meshing together with the rider and so on exactly what they needed it does seem that Alex wants to go in one direction and the team would want to, to either stay in one direction or go in a different direction they that's their mission this winter is to mesh those two things together what the rider wants and what the team thinks the bike can do and maybe with the changes on the bike they'll be able to do that more successfully not just for them but for everybody through the field everybody else that's going to be on a Kawasaki not just the second KRT bike but yes I think it was a bit it became very tough much tougher than I think anybody expected for Alex as the season progressed um, I think the new bikes may be going to be even more important for Alex than it is for Jonathan next year yeah, I think one of the big things is going to be to see whether or not over the course of the winter, and obviously it's going to be a longer winter for the teams, that they're really able to focus on what he needs from the bike and give it to him. But uh, we saw at where Alex had been, obviously Toprak replaced him at Yamaha, and we saw Toprak come in, and when Toprak's on, he's unbelievable. He still had some off weekends this year, but again, Yamaha were able to show a really strong season. Nine podiums for Toprak, eight podiums for Vandermark, both of them won races. And uh, it was a, another solid season for Yamaha. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Yamaha's effort is is very high level now. Uh, they had did some revisions for this year, um, and they obviously worked in some ways. Uh, I think Yamaha's got something of the same issue as the past: is who's the lead rider, who's the obvious world champion. Toprak might still be a little bit early, but if Toprak can replicate his best form every weekend. Everybody else is in trouble. Everybody. Um, that's been the difficulty. Michael is obviously not going to be there next year, but that if, if they can if they can get consistency of performance from the riders, I believe, maybe that bike's ready to go most places. It's certainly been around a while. Uh, we're expecting even more from it next year. I think Yamaha have all the stuff to compete. It's not quite as fast as a Ducati. It's not quite as rounded and working as many places, certainly for Jonathan as a Kawasaki, but it's it's pretty there. Maybe they need to have a... Their main issue is to get one rider challenge against the other top one riders. That could be from top back. I mean, his, his talent is unbelievable. His ability to ride is incredible. Whether it's a rider feeling or whether it's a bike feeling that only lets him ride sometimes the way he can, but his talent is is can beat anybody. They have to find a way of, of mining that for the whole season. Yeah, because I think for me, one of the key things that I'd like to see from Top Rack is that at the tracks where he struggles, and Aragon's probably the best example of it because his results are just awful there compared to everywhere else. But if he's able to really get himself dialed in for a track like Aragon, then he really can achieve almost anything in the championship because he's got that ability week in, week out, almost everywhere else. 
and it's just a case of trying to make sure he's got that drive make sure that he's training hard all those different things that go into being a top rider if top rack can do that the world's his oyster but he needs to really force himself to do it and do it week in week out yeah i think that's just the only thing that's missing from him is that it might be focus it might be um motivation it might be just his, his training He's, he's either fully on or fully off top rack to me. That's the way things are. Um, and at this level, that's not enough. Uh, you can have those amazing performances in a, in a load of podiums and, and wins straight. I mean, first race of the year, he won on a Yamaha. First race he had, he won on it. I mean, it's quite amazing. Uh, but, you know, he, he has to find... You can't be a world champion and have tracks you don't like or a setup you don't like. You have to find a way of riding through it. I'm sure all the world champions have, have won titles on bikes that they weren't 100% happy with. Uh, and maybe that's Top Rack's problem. Uh, it's difficult. The language thing doesn't let you really get to Top Rack. Uh, he's, when you ask him more deep questions, he either doesn't have the English to answer or he doesn't he doesn't want to. Or maybe he still hasn't worked it all out. But uh, if, and when he does, if and when he does, oof, you know he's gone. Yeah, and when you look at Yamaha as well, Gordo, obviously they've got Garrett Gerloff came through really well as the year progressed this year. He showed a lot of talent, a lot of potential. The future looks well for them, even if Michael Vandermark has left. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think Garrett was a, a great discovery this year. Um, I think the bike itself is, is obviously easier to ride than a lot of the other ones. Uh, you can get a lot out of it. Uh, I think the performance envelope of the bike isn't quite as good as some of the other ones, but it's it's... It's very, very small margins now. And we even saw how well Gerloff did on the 19 bike compared to the 20 bike at, at certain races. Um, yeah, no, Yamaha are very... Uh, they've got a kind of pyramid thing going on where they want to bring younger riders through from different series from inside the paddock and put them into the factory teams. And they've kind of been doing that, with the odd exception, that's what they do. Uh, and they've already had a couple of uh, seams of gold there. Um if they keep doing that, that'll be good for their future as a manufacturer. The one problem, and it's it's not the first year I've said this probably, is that there is no obvious number one championship contender inside Yamaha. Do you think, Gordo, do Yamaha really have the bike, the package, the infrastructure to win a championship? When you look at the resources that, Yam- that Yamaha spend on World SBK and you compare that to what Ducati spend, it really looks like with how the bike has developed, all the package that they have, that Ducati, because their road bike costs 40 grand, that it's really at that cutting edge, whereas the R1 costs a lot less. So therefore, you would expect that the base for that bike is also going to be a bit lower. Is it possible for Yamaha to win the World Championship with the bike that they have? Well, I don't think the Yamaha per se is less than a Kawasaki. But that's the only way I can say it. I think the the motorcycle, the Kawasaki is not a, a hugely expensive base road bike, etc. The Yamaha guys, when I put this question to them, consistently say, no, no, we've got all the tools we need, we've got everything able to compete and so on. I think Kawasaki's, uh, sorry, Yamaha's problem compared to the Kawasaki is exactly the same as Ducati's, is, is consistency of performance from one rider over a season. And if they can get that sorted... Second and third, and then the odd win might be enough to take it to uh, to the, the the leading package has been for the last few years, which is Kawasaki and Jonathan. But no one's been able to do that either in Yamaha colours. 
it's good result, not so good result, good result, not so good result. Again, you have to be in it towards the end to prove that. But I think that the, as a machine and as the backup, as the factory team and uh, the focus behind it, yes, it's not MotoGP, etc. But I, I, the Yamaha's a good bike and they're the ones that tell me. The, the top people in Yamaha are adamant that they've got everything, that, that everything's ready. It's okay. It's not as fast as the Ducati, but the Kawasaki's the one that's winning. And the Yamaha seems to be as fast as the Kawasaki. Yeah, and I think we definitely saw at the end of the year what it was capable of. And it'd be interesting to see whether or not they could harness it for a full season. That's what I'm really interested with them, to see whether they can do that. I'm also interested, Gordo, for your thoughts on what we saw from BMW this season. Because I think for all of us, BMW was probably the biggest disappointment in the paddock by a considerable margin. They've now obviously got a new bike for next year. They've got Van der Mark has, has signed on to go to the factory team. They're spending the money and they need to spend the money. They need to put the resources in and they've got a lot of ground to make up. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens with them this year. Yeah, I mean, yes, we, this 2020 was supposed to be the year that that bike came good. It was such a difficult birth, if you like, in 2019. It's a very complicated bike inside, even though it seems very conventional on the outside. A lot of engineering things took a while, but that's how it started again this year. Um, there, There is a question mark about BMW. Is it, is it enough for them to be there and be competitive? Um, and that's enough for them and sell loads of road bikes and sell loads of bikes to race teams and national championships and everything else? Um, or do they really want to be... A couple of my colleagues talk about, well, maybe they, they're not... It's good enough to be there and be competitive. The trouble was this year, when it was all supposed to come really good, it didn't, and it wasn't quite... didn't look as good as the, the year before. So they need the new bike. They need to step up their ambition as much as anything else um, and their own expectation of what is going to happen. Um, now, before anybody in BMW gets annoyed at me for saying that, it's obvious that the what they're putting into it, uh, it's obvious that they're they're all determined to win and they want to push on. But it hasn't it wasn't enough this year. They were unlucky at times, but they have to they had issues that should be solved with this new bike from point of view of reliability, from point of you know, silly things, not big things, but silly things that let them down at key moments, um, and consistency of performance across the weekends. Again, I think there's a lot in that, a lot of potential, and the new bike should certainly sort out a few of those issues. Um, and Michael, I mean, that, this is so. This is another new manufacturer for Michael Van der Mark, uh, who's going to be alongside a former world champion in a factory team that stuck the the M moniker on that bike. Um, that's a big deal. So hopefully that will make their overall. Uh, the, the motivation of having that and they're going to stake a lot on 2021 um, with the new bike and so on I really hope that they become the force that they should be on paper because to me there doesn't seem to be a lack of effort or will but there might be a the things haven't certainly worked out the expectation that I had for them and I'm sure they expected a lot more from 2020 than they finally got so they have to make it better next year whatever that takes Gordo, obviously 2021 is the last year that they have a contract with Sean Muir to run the operation. There's a lot of pressure on that team to be able to do things that they haven't been able to do since they came to the world stage. Obviously, in 
World SBK this year was a big struggle for them. Obviously, what we've seen from them in the past has been a struggle, but there's people there, there's resources there, there's potential there. And now with someone like Vandermark, there's also nothing where you can say they don't have a top tier rider on the bike as well. Obviously, Tom Sykes on the other side of the garage, Tom's a former world champion, brings with him tons of experience. It's a while since he won a race. For Vandermark, he won races over the last few years. He's been a contender for top three in the World Championship the last two years. Now really is the time for the team and that whole operation to really step up. Yes, everything has to work better as a unit. And there are, as in virtually every one of the main teams, two elements to the team. One is the home factory and the other one is the team, uh, in this case SMR, who run the team at tracks and, and other ways um, alongside the manufacturer that has to be made more harmonious it has to be made more effective the good thing is that Sean being who he is uh, is the kind of uh, guy who only really wants to win his mentality is winning he's won championships and so on it, it's not quite happened for them in, in World Superbike so far but I, they're certainly not there um to do anything except go for the, the best results possible. So I think their determination is going to be redoubled this year as well. Maybe there's a disconnect in the, the two elements of that team. Um, but I just see this year as being, if that bike is really an improvement, I don't see why, given that they've got a new rider, one of the hottest riders in the championship, and somebody who does have to start being a genuine championship contender pretty soon, uh They've got all the elements there. I think this is the most exciting year for BMW for a long time. And, Cord, would you think is it a good comparison to make to what we saw from Honda, Honda this year? Because, obviously, you look at Honda in 2019, it was a disastrous year. It was a season where they never really got off the ground. They used it as a data-gathering season that didn't really try and show their good results. This year, they made a massive step forward. We were really able to see Honda back at the front in World SBK, fighting for podiums, finishing on the podiums. Bautista, with a little bit of luck, could easily have won a race. Would you say that's the model that BMW need to follow? I think they'll be hoping for more than that. Um, the, the, you know, they, they need to be aiming for more than that, or they, they might not even get that. I think the Honda was a, was a, is an amazing piece of kit for such a conventional bike on paper. It's actually when you look at the thing and examine it and you, you see all the details of it, it's really, it's pretty cool and doubly cool as a race bike. Um, but it just, it was a horrible season to be bringing a new bike um, with all the COVID things, with the, the Japanese uh, engineers not being able to travel as much as they wanted to. I think probably Honda underestimated the challenge that they were facing, um, even after 2019. Um but the bike is not an. It's such an amazing piece of kit, but it is also not uh, as much of a heavily focused race bike uh, in its overall design as, for example, the RC forty five was, as the RC thirty was all those years ago. They haven't made a mega special. Um, they've tried to keep the Fireblade inline four idea, and then put a lot of MotoGP derived technology inside it. And there is lots, and uh, you know, very very short intakes and so on. Um, it's it's an amazing thing and it shows what it can do but it was obvious Batista was on the edge to get the results he did this year and it was obvious every time they, they overstepped the mark the bike just snapped back at them and threw them off um, you know look at how many 
race crashes there were because they were just pushing it too hard. But I think inside that bike is a huge potential, but it, it's it's not quite come out yet. Whether the new BMW has got the same absolute level of potential, I'm not quite sure, but I think you maybe don't need that, or you can only use that a few times a year and a few tracks. Um, but you ha- it's that ability to run at 99% all the time is the most important thing for BMW to go at, and I think that's what the the Honda was was. It'd be very interesting to see what the actual uh, final potential of that Honda, or the final reality of that Honda, is compared to this year's potential. Because at times you thought, "Wow, that thing's a missile," and at other times you thought, "Wow, you know, it's crashed again," or you know, it's just slow. Batista's unhappy. Leon's having to ride on the edge to get anything. Um, I think it's a sum of its parts. The Honda project didn't work this year, but at the same time, there was a podium. And there was, as you say, certain races you thought, well, if he's tireless, he could be on for a win here. It, you know, it generally always went a bit wrong. But um, the part of the, the looking forward to next year is quite how, with a long winter, uh, quite how good Honda can make that bike as a racing package uh, on the track, using race tyres, allowing the riders to ride at 99% all the time will be fascinating to see next year. This there should be no excuses for Honda next year. Because they had yeah, it, such a bad nineteen, such a potential in twenty. Everybody that's been inside the bike and looked at it says, Wow, it's really cool. But they have to put all that together. They keep talking about when we put all the parts together, well, you know, April and Assen is when it's going to start counting. Yeah, and Gordo, when you look at uh, how all of these teams are going to have to develop as well, obviously we've seen that Honda has Bautista and Haslam. We've obviously seen the Murawaki team in the paddock as well, and they struggled through the course this year. And one of the things that I found interesting whenever I was down at the Hareth tests was there's a lot of rumours that Tito Rabat could even be in play for, for that team because obviously a rider like Tito can make a big difference for the teams, try and find some sponsors, former world champion, all that kind of thing. But the satellite situation is what's going to be really interesting next year as well because obviously BMW are going to have two satellite teams. They're going to have Eugene Laverty on one bike. They're going to have Giannis Folger on another bike. Ducati has obviously brought Rinaldi onto the factory bike, but they've put Chaz Davis onto a satellite bike. And it makes a lot of sense, especially for Davis. When you look back at how the season's gone, second half of the year, he was incredible. But maybe for Ducati, you can understand why they've decided, okay, we want to bring Rinaldi in but we don't want to lose Davis as well. Yes, if you're aiming for the Manufacturers' Championship and the Team's Championship, as well as the Riders' Championship, you have to have people to get your results every weekend when someone, the, the potential number one rider, isn't getting the result. Um, I think it was very wise to keep those three guys. It's great to see Ronaldo being promoted. I think Ronaldo into the factory team is a good choice, but at the expense of getting rid of the experience of someone like Davies and the vast amount of podiums and and good scores they can do over a season as part of a team. And the thing that Ronaldo doesn't have is as much experience to get the bike right. Um, It's like a virtuous feedback loop with three inputs. So you've got Reading and Ronaldo in the factory team, but even this year, the Go11 team was looked at like it was very close to cooperating with the factory um, and 
you know, end of the day, Ronaldo was a test rider in some regards. So they've kept that same cadre that was pretty successful this year. As I say, the only thing that was missing was final results on the day. But that that little triumvirate of riders is, is a very good um, way of doing it. And they've found a way of keeping Chaz, who, who said he really wasn't keen to ride in a, a bike that wouldn't allow him to, to fight for the World Championship. There is no reason why, with the right support inside that team, Chaz can't be fighting right at the top again next year. Absolutely no reason, because he's got the experience to do it. So, but keeping him was great. Moving Ronaldo up or keeping him in goal 11, that, that's just a, maybe even a political or financial choice as much as anything else. Um, but I think it's great that Chaz is still in his championship on a good bike. And obviously, there'll be a lot of feedback from Chaz's experience into the overall project. And Gordo, obviously, we're just coming to the end of the podcast now. But uh, when you look back on this season, what's your one standout memory? What's the big highlight for you? Ah, uh, you were going to say that. Uh, well, there's been a few. The good thing well, is, well, then I hope you're prepared for it, Gordo. Well, I'm, I'm always prepared and never prepared. You know me. Um, ultimately, what was the highlight? I think the feeling of leaving Phillip Island, even with a little kind of dark shadow of COVID starting to show itself, and what we're going to do next. But Phillip Island was was absolutely uh, feel good racing, an amazing racetrack showing the potential and promise of this season. Um and it actually was borne out. I think that was the that was a highlight for me was was one that whole trip to Australia, but ultimately uh the feeling that World Superbike was back to uh some of its best. Uh I've been there a long time and, and after Phillip Island I felt as happy and as good to be there and as enthused and optimistic about the championship season developing as I had ever done. And obviously there's been a lot of dark moments and, and for by the horrible human loss of COVID um, in terms of how it affected the sport and people's love for it. Um, it got a bit weird after that. So it's, there's a lot of highlights this year. Um, but I think that feel, just for me personally, that feeling of leaving Phillip Island with uh, quite such amazing races we had and three different winners and all, and, and Redding being fast first time out and you know new riders winning on new bikes uh, and just, the, the, the wonderful entertainment of all yeah it might have been a bit early to get the, the highlight of the season in but I think genuinely for me that was the that was the best bit that and travelling around Europe on a bike following the races as well I don't have to say that's something new all those years I've been doing it and that was a personal highlight as well although very weird yeah, and I think that this was probably one of those seasons as well where you needed those personal highlights as well Gordo because I remember in Phillip Island we all knew something was wrong whenever we were out there we knew that the whole thing could come crashing down pretty quickly and we recorded on the Monday knowing that the Qatar Grand Prix had been cancelled and that it was highly unlikely that we were going to be able to have a World Superbike round in Qatar two weeks later and that spectre sort of hung over the paddock at the start of the week in Australia but then by the time we got into the races and the races were so good we forgot about it until suddenly you're out of a race weekend bubble and then you're right back into the real world and I think that was what made Phillip Island even better as you said it, we we had that just three great races we had a great weekend and then suddenly after that you were just taken away from all that and it was tough for everyone for the next few months I remember for me though the big highlight for me was Hareth Saturday the first race back and 
there was just that sense of relief that we're all back to work, that we're back to watching races, that, you know, everything's everything's going to be back to normal. And that was, for me, a great feeling just for all of us. Like, we're all fans as much as we're anything else. And we're lucky to do what we do. But we miss being able to sit down and watch a race. And for that to come back, it was it was huge for me. And that was probably, for me, the big highlight. Yeah, and remember, we got to go. A lot of our colleagues in MotoGP weren't allowed to go to the races because, partly because there was few of us, we were actually allowed to go to the races. And although it was nothing like normal, you could actually speak and ask your own questions and be involved at a distance and only at certain times and with all the restrictions. But nothing beats being able to speak to people who've just come off track from doing amazing things and get to them when their blood's hot. You know, we got to go. It wasn't that the season restarted, it was the fact that we were actually part of it. That Again, yes, I, I would agree with you there, that that was a, a euphoric relief to be able to think, wow, we didn't just get Australia and nothing else. Um, yeah, no, and the earth was, I mean, and the heat was unreal. I mean, that's the hottest race I've been to oof, a long time. Um, but that didn't put anybody off. We were just so happy to be there. We all just battered through the heat and everybody was so determined just to have it. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And uh, the fact that Reading was so good, we thought, well, you know, we've definitely got a championship on here. Barcelona, going to Barcelona. You know, the last time I was in the Catalonia race was for a GP, God knows how many years ago. I never thought we'd ever go there. And here we got to the, the magnificent racetrack at Barcelona. And it threw up a, a few new interesting things as well. So, no, highlights, I could give you a dozen, mate. We could be here a while. Yeah, well, I was going to say, just once you mentioned Barcelona, for me, one of the big on track highlights of the year was super sport because Andy Verdoy winning the race was crazy and it was you know I can I can I can understand why people say it was an undeserved win it was this it was that but he won and it was something that got everyone in the paddock talking so you know there was there was tons of highlights and for me it was it was great just to be able to get through to the end of the season the relief in Portugal when everyone sat down on on the Sunday to have a beer was class it was one of those moments where everyone was able to take a sigh of relief we'd all got through the year and you know all those things all add up through the course of the year and that's what will make this a special year in a lot of ways it's going to be a year we're all going to remember and you just hope that when we move into 2021 that we end up with as good a season as what we had this year because I thought the racing we had all the way through the year was great. I thought we were able to have good battles on track. We've got new characters coming through. We've got new riders coming through and that can only be a good thing. And you know what? There's every chance that next year is going to be an even better season and an even weirder season than this one because after 19, when we had an absolute runaway winner in Batista and then Ray and Kawasaki came back to win it, I remember thinking at the end of that season, well, we're never going to have a season as weird as that. And then we had 2020, which for unfortunate reasons, and, and again, sometimes very dark reasons, let's not lose sight of it. But it was an, a, a quite unforgettable, never seen before, in terms of the pure sporting element of it. Uh, season after what, to me, had been the year before, just the year before, wow, you know, that, that was something else to watch, that comeback and... and you know, in 2019 was unreal. And then 2020, partly because of the way the season was, so compact and compressed, was, was just fantastic. You know, in terms of sporting, it was amazing. Um, 
Yeah, and and we're we're looking at changes in the future in Superbike. You know, there will be changes in the 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 short term future of Superbike, but the product that's on there now is hyper competitive all the way through all the classes, and that should only get better in the future. Next year should be the resurgence of BMW and the final potential realised of the Honda, added to the already known quantities that we've got from the other manufacturers. Tell me why it's not going to be better next year. Uh, you know, it might not be, but I, I, all I'm looking at is that it may be even better next year. Yeah, and I think for me, Gordo, when, when you ask that question, it's hard to see how it won't be because all we've seen over the course of the last few years is the rules making things closer and closer. And now we're really starting to see the fruit of that. And that's what's going to make, hopefully, 2021 really special. And uh, hopefully for everyone that's listened to the Paddock Pass podcast all the way through the year, they've enjoyed the Superbike shows. I know I've always enjoyed talking to you, Gordo. And hopefully everyone at home has been able to enjoy just getting your insight all the way through the season, right from the start of lockdown as well, where we were able to get you on for a couple of shows just to uh, bring back the memory bank from El Gordo. So it's been a lot of fun all the way through the year. And I'm looking forward to another year next year where we're able to keep talking about World SBK and uh, hopefully another year that's as memorable as what we've had this year. Oh, mate, absolutely. I've loved it. It's it's great. It's like uh, one every, after every weekend you get a chance to read on it. Uh, talk to you. It's like, it's like what we can't do at the moment, go down a pub and talk with your mates. That's, that's the kind of way it, it feels like to be when I do these podcasts. It's just having a, whoa, wasn't that great the weekend? And, and some insight based on the fact that you were there. Um, I thoroughly enjoy it. I hope the people that are listening to it do as well. Um, and I hope we show the enthusiasm we've got for it because it's Superbike's great again. It's really good. It's a, it's a great championship and it's great to be there and you can still interact with people. And hopefully we've brought some of that uh, close personal contact that we get with the people um, to to anybody who's listening. It's more than you can get from just TV. Yeah, and hopefully it's uh, not going to seem too long until the season starts, Gordo, at the end of April in Aston. I'm definitely looking forward to being able Yeah, And the bright side, Gordo, will be down in south of Spain for testing in January all the same. So I'm looking forward to being able to get back down to Hareth and uh, see what's see what's happening with uh, all the new teams that's going to be in the Championship next year. I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with the satellite operations for BMW. They should be on track from that test onwards. So that's really whenever the 2021 season really kicks off for me we've obviously had a november test already but really it's all about those january tests and no doubt we'll be able to talk again at those test order and bring everyone up to speed about what we've seen during the test so from me steve english a big thank you to everyone that's listened to the show that's given us feedback all the way through the year and a big thank you gordo for joining us all the way through the season it's been a pleasure as always mate uh, and for me total pleasure take care mate okay well thanks very much gordo and thanks very much to everyone for listening to this show